Welcome to the Morgan Aviation Podcast. Morgan Aviation Podcast. A unique perspective on all things aviation from the pilot's point of view. And here's your host, Jake Morgan. And welcome back, everybody, to the Morgan Aviation Podcast. I'm your host, Jake Morgan. And today in this episode, we're going to be talking about the $100 hamburger and uh, flying to go get food. Just in the spirit of Thanksgiving, I figured it'd be a good opportunity for us to talk about flying to get food and just food in general with everything going on right now. So I'm going to go ahead and jump right in. So the first time that I ever flew to get a $100 hamburger, and for those of you who don't know what a $100 hamburger is, it's just uh, it's not a hamburger that literally costs $100. just a, a reference that pilots have when we're going to fly to get food. Usually if it if you're flying anywhere to get food, costs you about $100 as far as the normal burn time, as far as fuel costs and, and operating costs of an airplane. So anytime you fly to get food, you're figuring you're compensating at least 100 bucks in flying there, so they call it a $100 hamburger, regardless of what it is you're actually getting or the cost of the food itself. But anyway, the, my first time uh, flying to get a $100 hamburger, we flew to... Uh, Urbana Grimes during my uh, dual cross-country and my private pilot training. So flew from Bucyrus to Urbana, which is uh, India 7-4, for those of you wanting to look up the identifier. They have an airport diner right there at the field. Pretty cool little airport. They have uh, two different intersecting runways. Um, they had, well, not necessarily intersecting. They kind of V off of each other. They have a, uh, an asphalt, a stereotypical asphalt runway, which is zero, two, and two, zero. And then they have a grass runway that almost runs parallel to it, which is uh, one, nine, and zero, one. So, and that is, uh, you have to have a certain distance from your base airport to count for a cross country, air quotations, cross country flight. Uh, for your requirements for your private pilot training. So this airport just happened to be 54 nautical miles away from Bucyrus, so it did qualify for that cross-country time. I think it's 50 nautical miles it needs to be to uh, qualify for cross-country. So pretty cool flight over there. It's just, uh, for those of you who aren't familiar, Urbana is pretty much straight west of Columbus, maybe a little bit northwest of Columbus, but nice little airport. They have a... uh, a uh, small museum with some World War II age planes in it um, and things of that nature. But we flew down to Urbana, uh, got fly, flight following with uh, Columbus Approach, and flew down there, landed, and went to the diner there in Urbana. They have a amazing pie at this place, so we went and got uh, kind of brunch and uh, got some pie to take home with us. So there's quite a few places around in my area that have these kind of airport-style diners or restaurants at the airport or close proximity to the airport. Um, Urbana is one of my favorites. Uh, we've gone to quite a few other ones, too. Um, probably my favorite out of all of them in my area anyway um, would be a toss-up between Port Clinton um, which they have a nice airport diner there called the Tin Goose. 
uh, and Carroll County Airport, which is kind of over in Amish country area. They have another airport diner over there. The Ten Goose is pretty cool up in Port Clinton. It's like a 40s or 50s themed, uh, your stereotypical diner, but it kind of kind of has that old look to it, which is pretty cool. And they have a really big uh, military aviation museum, which has lots of airplanes and some Jeeps. And I think they have a couple tanks and stuff in there too, which is pretty cool. Um, but it's nice being able to fly around and just, if you're looking to build time, what, what better way to do that than to, to go somewhere and uh, get food as far as that goes. But anyway... As far as local to me, those are the the biggest ones. There's, uh, oh, what's the name of it? It's on Mount Victory. There's the Plaza Inn. Um, Elliott's Landing is the name of the, uh, the airstrip over there in Mount Victory. There is uh, over in Mansfield. It's not really like a, a big restaurant by any means, but uh, Mansfield KMFD, they have a subway. Uh, New Philadelphia has a uh, kind of an Italian restaurant, uh, which is pretty cool. There's a few other places around that have some. Some of them will just have like food trucks, and a bunch of them will have uh, restaurants in close proximity to the airport, or you have an option for a crew car. We can just take the car at the airport to go pretty much anywhere in town or in close proximity to the airport to uh, get yourself some food or whatever. But also when you go going on trips like this and any kind of cross-country flight or anything like that, there's a lot of planning that can come along with it as well. So like I've mentioned before, I fly VFR, visual flight rules. So the weather has to be cooperating and the cloud level has to be at a certain you know level for me to be comfortable, for me to be able to even go flying in the first place. So Weather has a lot to do with the planning, but I kind of wanted to talk a little bit about what all I do to plan for a cross country and kind of what all I go into as far as that goes. So the, the significance of the trip as far as what kind of distances you're going to be covering um, is going to depend a lot on how heavy you can get into uh, the, the planning for a VFR flight. So... IFR flight is a little bit different because you have the flexibility of if the weather changes and gets to a point where the cloud level gets lower to where you're going to have to fly IFR, you can either file an IFR flight plan or if you're flying VFR and you realize that these conditions are starting to, to bank down on you a little bit, the weather's starting to change, you don't have to go ahead and find your, your closest airport while you're on the flight, land, wait for the weather to get better and take off. You can... Uh, call flight service while you're in the air, file a pop-up IFR flight plan, and keep on trucking. So VFR is a little bit of a different animal as far as that goes. It takes a little bit more pre-planning as far as the weather side is concerned. But as far as the, the, the planning itself, um, I use ForeFlight um, is the application that I use for pretty much all of my flying. It's a, uh, there's a few other options you can use too. I think there's like Garmin Pilot, um, and there's a couple other ones too that that I don't I don't use myself, but uh, ForeFlight is the application that I use that has all my sectional charts, uh, airspace restrictions, 
uh, airports, the frequencies for each airport, the places I can stop to get fuel, food, um, notums or uh, notices to airmen, pyreps, which are pilot reports. So I can look at everything in the area, see the actual radar, the weather radar um, at all these different airports, see what kind of availability the airports have and things of that nature. Also with uh, for flight, I can look at my weight and balance and my luggage requirements. So I can look and see, okay, I know I'm gonna be flying, uh, I know I'm gonna have no passengers, one passenger, two passenger, three passenger, whatever, how much those people weigh. I can plug all that into my weight and balance computations, figure out how much we're going to have as far as luggage or baggage, uh, how much fuel I'm going to need for that kind of a flight, plug all that in, make sure it checks out on my weight and balance computation, and then I can print that right off a of flight with my wireless printer. Take that and then I'll have it in the airplane. Um, I can look at my forecasts to see what I'm gonna be looking at as far as cloud conditions, weather, when it comes to uh, wind direction, wind speed, how that's gonna affect my, my performance. So if I have a headwind, um, that's gonna make me fly a little bit slower. If I have a tailwind, it's gonna make me fly a little bit faster. It's also gonna help me plan a little bit ahead of time as far as what kind of runways I'm gonna be using, things of that nature, what kind of uh, crosswind correction or a wind correction angle I'm going to need while I'm flying. So if I have a, a wind coming off of either one of my sides, obviously that's going to push me off of my desired track to my destination. So I'll have to compensate and angle the plane more towards that wind to keep myself on the desired track that I'm looking for. So there's a lot of things that I can go through and do ahead of time as far as what I'm looking for for the flight itself, what kind of conditions I'm going to be flying in, what I'm going to need to do to plan for the flight and how to load the plane, how much fuel I'm going to need, if I'm going to need full tanks, if I can even take full tanks. So if I have uh, multiple passengers in the plane and some luggage, that might push me up to the useful load of the plane uh, to where if I run uh, full fuel on my tanks, it may run me over max gross weight on the plane. So obviously I can't do that. I need to compensate for taking a little bit less baggage um, or taking less fuel if I can compensate for that. So that might mean I need to stop halfway and get gas. Uh, I may need to get gas when I get to my destination before I fly home, um, or I just need to take less baggage, luggage, or less people. You know, that's always an option too. You know, if it gets to the point where this flight isn't going to be feasible with the people that I have in the plane. Um, you may just not be able to take that flight at all, or you may need to break it up into different flights. Or if you have other pilot friends, you may just need to take another airplane. Um, so once I have the actual flight itself planned out uh, ahead of time, I'll have everything, all my calculations and everything ready to go for the flight itself. Then I will go through and check the airplane itself to make sure that it's in a condition that's ready to fly. So what I'm looking for when I do my pre-flight inspection of the plane and actually checking the, the logs of the plane, make sure everything's ready to go, 
I'll look at, because my plane is a, a rental aircraft right now, so it requires an annual inspection as well as a 100-hour inspection. So I need to check and make sure it is within the annual requirements, it's not due for an oil change, and it is within the 100-hour and close enough within the 100-hour that it's not going to be impeded within 10 hours of the 100-hour inspection by the time to the end of this flight. Because you have to have a little bit of leniency because you obviously have to fly the plane to the mechanic to get the 100-hour and the annual inspections done. So you want to have a little bit of buffer in there um, ahead of time. You don't want to fly it right up to the maximum amount of hours, and then you realize, oh, no, i got to fly this thing 45 minutes over to the mechanic. If you have one on the field, that's a little bit of a different animal. But still, um, if you have to fly your, your plane to the mechanic to get the inspections done, um, you want to give yourself a little bit of a buffer there. You don't want to try to run it all the way to the end. So checking the, the logs on the plane, make sure the hour requirements are, are within date. Make sure you don't need an oil change. Uh, you're within the 100-hour and within the annual inspection requirements. So that's the, the big thing. You need to make sure all the documentation is in the airplane that you're required to carry by the FAA, which you check all that every time before the flight. Um, and then you'll start the, the pre pre-flight inspection of the plane itself. So you'll check the mechanics and make sure everything's working properly on the airplane. There's no kind of damage. There's nothing that's going to cause you any issues. So when I do my pre-flight inspection, what I will do is I do a flow check. Uh, so you have a checklist that you'll follow um, and you'll go through line by line on the checklist to make sure you check all these pertinent items on the pre-flight so you don't miss anything that might cause issues later. So what I do is I've done it enough, I, I pretty much have the, the checklist memorized. So what I will do is I'll walk around the airplane and do my normal inspection, and then I'll go back through, I'll pull out the checklist and go down each line item and be like, yep, I checked that, yep, I checked that, and just double check myself to make sure I didn't hit anything. So rather than just doing a standard flow check, um, I still have the opportunity that I might forget something. Um, and that's just how I do it. So I do a, a regular flow check, and then I'll go back and double check myself with the checklist um, on the plane that I fly, just because I'm comfortable with doing that. You don't have to do it that way. Uh, you can go through line by line on the checklist and do it that way, too. That's just how I do it personally. Um, so with the pre-flight inspection, I'll just kind of walk you through how I do that. So I'll start at the, the nose of the airplane. And I'll just kind of do a walk around uh, counterclockwise around the airplane. So I'll start on the, the front left side of the plane and work my way around the back, uh, back to the front, and then I'll, I'll go inside. So I'll open the door, turn on the master switch, lower the flaps. Uh, so I'll make sure those are coming down and working properly, and then I'll turn on all of the light switches. So then when I do that, I'll walk back out of the airplane with all that stuff on along with the, uh, the pitot heat. I'll turn that on too. So there's a pitot tube that measures the, uh, the airspeed of the airplane, a pitot-static system. The tube itself has a heating element in it. Uh, so you can check to make sure that's working. So if you get into, it's usually more pertinent with uh, really, really cold weather or uh, if you're flying in IFR conditions, high altitude, flying through water droplets, you can pick up ice. So it's a little bit more pertinent to, to make sure that's working. But I, I check it every time regardless, because if it is not working, 
I want to know why it's not working, even if I don't necessarily need it for the flight. Same with all the lights. I do the same thing. But anyway, turn all that stuff on, walk out to the front of the plane. I check the, at the very nose of the plane, there is a landing light. There's an LED landing light up there. I'll make sure that's working. I will walk a few steps back and check the tail of the plane. At the very top of the tail of the plane, there is a flashing red beacon light that'll, that'll uh, tell other planes that, that my airplane is running. So I'll make sure that's flashing. Go over to the left wing tip. There is a navigation light and a flashing, uh, another uh, strobe on that side as well. So I will double check, make sure both of those lights are working and the housings themselves are not cracked or broken. I'll go over to the right wing and do the same thing, check those lights as well. So those are going to be all of the, the big lights. Walk back over to the left wing of the airplane and I'll grab onto the uh, pitot tube. Um, if it already has the pitot tube cover removed, I'll take the cover off if it's on there uh, and feel the pitot tube and make sure it's warming up. It's not going to be super hot, but you'll feel it a little bit warmer rather than, you know, the metal in the hanger when it's just sitting in there, it'll have a little bit of a cool touch to it. So if it feels warm or feels like it's starting to warm up, that means the pitot heat is uh, working. So then I'll go back into the airplane, double check and see what the fuel gauges are reading, uh, see what those are. Those are usually kind of a ballpark. So when the fuel gauges on the airplane read, you know, half a tank, three quarters of a tank, full tanks, uh, that's usually a ballpark, but I don't trust the gauges themselves. So I will do uh, a dip of the tank. So we have this stick that has measuring lines on it. So I'll climb up onto uh, the airplane, so I'll either grab a stepladder or there's a little step on the side of the plane. And then our fuel caps, the actual fuel fill for the airplane, there's one on each side on top of the wings on our plane, Cessna 172. So I'll climb up there, take the stick down and dip it into the tank and pull it up and it tells you how many gallons are on each side. So I will double check each wing as far as the fuel quantity. Um, after I check the, the, the quantity, I will also check the quality of the plane fuel. So I will take um, the fuel sump. So on the bottom of each one of the wings, there is a little valve you can stick this tube up to, and it fills up the tube with the fuel that's in the bottom of the tanks on each side of the wing. So you can check the quality of the fuel. So you hold it up to the light or hold it up to uh, the, the sun. And you can see there should be a clear uh, blue tinge to the fuel. If there's any kind of separation, so if it looks like water sitting on oil where it's kind of separated, that means you have water in the fuel. But on the, the good thing with that is water will sink to the bottom um, and the fuel will sit on top. So if you see water in the fuel, you can just sit there and sump each side of the tanks until all of the water is drained out and then it will only leave the, uh, the fuel. So check and make sure the, the quality of the fuel is good as well. No particulates in it, no water in it, no other kind of debris, um, and make sure it's the right kind of fuel. Like I said, 100 low lead, which is the kind of gas that we run in this airplane, has a blue tint to it. So it'll, it'll be blue. It shouldn't be white or green or red, um, which different types of fuel will have different colors, but the 100 low lead is a light blue color. So after I check the fuel, uh, like I said, I go back in the plane, turn all the switches back off, turn the master back off because there's no sense in uh, leaving those on and running the battery low for no reason. And then I'll start back at the, the front of the left wing of the airplane. 
So on the cowling, which on the side of the engine, there is the the static port for the pitot static system. So there's a little two, there's a little pinhole on the side of the cowling that you'll check to make sure that it's free of debris to make sure that the pitot static system's working. That controls your airspeed indicator, um, your altimeter, things like that. It's going to be measuring the the external pressure of the airplane, as far as the air pressure is concerned. So walking along the the side of the cowling, making sure all the the screws are are in all the way, make sure there's no damage to the plane. You start on the left wing. I'll go up the the wing strut itself, make sure there's no damage to that, as well as the leading edge of the left wing. Like I said, I've already checked the pitot tube, uh, removed the pitot tube cover, and that's all good to go. There is another port at the very top of the left wing that is the uh, stall warning port. So on this kind of plane, uh, that stall warning port, we have this little, uh, I don't really know how to describe it, it's like a, like a squeaky toy inside of the, the stall warning horn. So we have this little uh, bulb that you'll stick over the stall warning port and push it, and you should hear inside the airplane, it should make like a squeaky toy noise. So you check to make sure that's working properly, walking along the, the leading edge of the plane, um, making sure that the airplane's not tied down because you have tie downs on each one of the bottoms of the wing and at the tail. Ours is in a hangar, so we don't have to worry about the tie down. So walking along, like I said, double checking the um, lenses on the lights on the outside of the wing, going towards the back of the wing on each side, moving the ailerons up and down so these control the, the roll of the airplane, so side to side. So you'll move that up and down, make sure that it is moving properly, as well as watching the other wing and making sure that it is working opposite to the one you're moving. So if you pull it down, the other one should go up. You push it up, the other one should go down, and vice versa. So you push it up, make sure all the screws that are holding the aileron on are all in properly, and there is a uh, control rod that runs into the aileron that moves it up and down kind of jiggle that back and forth, make sure there's a little bit of play in it, but it's not super loose. Same thing with the flaps, move it up and down. It shouldn't move hardly at all, but there should be a little bit of play in it. Same deal, make sure all the, the screws are in there properly and uh, the, there's no damage and the control rod wiggles a little bit. Going down the left side of the fuselage and empennage, so the, the left side of the plane all the way down to the tail, uh, making sure that the luggage door is closed and locked. I always lock it just because even if there's nobody sitting in the back, and I always have some things in the back of the plane as far as like a, a survival kit and stuff like that that's in the back emergency kit. But I lock the door that way just it doesn't pop up and pop open in flight and, and be chattering while we're flying. Walking down the, le the left side of the tail, uh, running my hand across, make sure you don't feel any kind of broken spars inside um, or see any kind of damage. Uh, which there shouldn't be unless you hit something, but you always double check just to be sure. Checking the leading edge of the elevator uh, on the tail of the plane, making sure there's no damage there. Going around to the back of the tail, lifting the elevator up and down to uh, make sure that it's moving correctly, as well as looking in the back window of the airplane, and you'll see the yoke pulling and pushing inside as you move the elevator up and down. So you'll see the controls actually moving inside the plane making sure the cables and screws are all connected properly um, on each side of the tail, as well as the rudder 
uh, which is the vertical part of the tail. There are cables in the bottom. You'll make sure those are connected properly. You'll move the, the rudder back and forth a little bit, make sure there are tension on those cables and that the screws are all in there properly. So starting on the, the right side of the airplane, we're walking up uh, along the, the side of the tail as well, running our hand across, make sure you're not feeling any broken spars. And then you do the same thing on the right wing as you would the left. So just in reverse, you'll start with the flaps, check, make sure that's working properly. Same with the aileron, moving it up and down, making sure it opposes the left side, checking the lenses, leading edge of the wing, all that on the right side. After that, I will go and check the tires, make sure the tire pressure is uh, proper, make sure the tires don't look deflated, make sure there are no bald spots, no uh, wires, or uh, you don't see any of the threads in the tire, uh, make sure there's no sidewall damage on the tire itself. Then you look inside of the tire on each side, uh, check, make sure the brake pads and the rotors look like they're in good shape and there's no leaking hydraulic fluid. Uh, for the brakes. The nose gear on the airplane will do the same thing. Check the tire, make sure it looks uh, like it should be. Also check the spacing of the nose strut so there is a shock absorber in the nose wheel um, that has a gap uh, from the fork where the, the nose tire hooks to uh, and the shock itself. So there should be about three inches or so of spacing from the, the beginning of the fork to the bottom of the shock absorber. So there should be a little bit of play in there and make sure that is moving properly. And then on the right side of the cowling, so the right side of the engine of the airplane, there's a little door that flips up on ours. So you'll flip that door up. That's where the oil dipstick is and then the, the strainer, the fuel strainer. There's another fuel sump uh, underneath the engine in the, the carburetor. So you'll pull that little fuel sump there will be a little bit of fuel that kind of pees out underneath the engine uh, just to make sure anything at the very bottom is strained out and it's clean. You close that back off. Also, you pull out the oil dipstick, check the oil quantity as well as the quality. Um, so you want to make sure that the oil looks clean, you don't have any metal shavings, and it also doesn't look like chocolate milk. It should look like a, like a golden brown color and nice and clean translucent oil. And in our plane, you should have somewhere between six and eight quarts of oil. Um, if you fill it all the way up to eight quarts on ours, just tell how our plane specifically works. If you fill it all the way up to eight quarts, um, you'll just waste oil. So it'll kind of spit some out uh, as you're flying, and it'll, it'll kind of spray it off. So seven quarts is kind of that sweet spot. So you need to be between six and eight. Um, if you're going on a cross-country flight, you don't want to be right at six because you could burn some oil off during the flight. So right about seven. Um, if you're going on a really long flight, you can run it all the way up to eight, but just know you're going to be wasting some oil when you do that. So I usually run it right about seven quarts, and that seems to be the sweet spot for our airplane. Walking around the, the nose of the plane, I will check the propeller itself, uh, make sure there's no damage to the propeller, no cuts, no scratches, no cracks in the propeller itself. Everything is proper and structurally sound. So kind of tug it back and forth on each side, not putting a whole bunch of pressure. I'm not trying to jerk the airplane around with the propeller, but just making sure everything feels nice and tight. There's not any play and it's not feeling real loose. The spinner, so the cap that goes on the front of the airplane, make sure there's not any kind of major damage along with that. 
and then behind the propeller, there are holes on each side of the front of the uh, cowling where air will come in. So you can kind of look in the, if you're looking at the airplane head on, it'll be in the hole on the left hand side. You can see the, the belt that goes around the alternator of the airplane. So you'll check to make sure that belt looks okay. There's no cracks, no scratches. It doesn't look like it's fraying. All that looks okay. And then you'll look in the left and right side in the hole beside the alternator uh, behind the propeller and uh, make sure that there aren't any animals or any debris inside of those uh, before you go to start up the airplane. So you to make sure there's no mouse houses in there, there's no bird houses, there's no birds, no stray cats that have climbed in there because uh, you don't want to suck that stuff right up into the engine of the airplane. That would be a really bad day for you and whatever decided to crawl in there. Um, and then below the propeller, there is a filter. So there's like this waxy filter you'll check to make sure that's intact and uh, kind of has a greasy feel to it that just kind of helps keep debris out of the, the front of the airplane. And then, like I said, after I do all that, I will uh, open up the, the checklist itself and then go through line by line to make sure that I hadn't missed anything and... Uh, if there's anything else that I need to check that I had missed, I will double check it at that point. But that's just kind of how I flow through it um, and make sure everything's ready to go before I go on a cross-country flight um, and make sure everything's ready on the airplane itself. Um, so after I get the pre-flight inspection all taken care of, I will pull out the airplane, pull it out onto the taxiway, get it all ready to go, um, as far as getting things loaded up, get people in the airplane, close the doors, lock the doors, close the windows, lock the windows, um, and then we'll do a pre-flight briefing with anybody that's in the plane. So, hey, this is what we're going to be doing. This is what happens in case of an emergency. This is how the seatbelts work. This is how the door works, yada, 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 that kind of stuff. And then I will go through, fire up the airplane, get the programming into the, the GPS or the VORs and and the radios get everything ready to go as far as that goes and uh, then we'll get ready to take off so then we'll taxi over if we need to get fuel we'll grab fuel before we take off um, listen to the AWOS or ATIS or ASOS depending on the airport so listen to the the active weather that's going on so we know what kind of runway we're going to be taking off which direction the wind is blowing um, and what kind of conditions we might be looking at as far as pressure altitude um, so I know what the performance is going to be like of the airplane before we take off. Then we'll, we'll, like I said, we'll get the GPS and everything all programmed up and then you're ready to take off. So then I'll be looking at uh, the radios as far as getting, getting a hold of air traffic control. So if I, I usually, if I'm going to any kind of cross country, I will get flight following or local radar service. So I'll call air traffic control and be like, hey, I'm going to this place. Basically just asking them to watch out for other traffic, make sure you don't hit anybody. It's kind of the whole concept of flight following. But that's pretty much it for today, guys. Just kind of wanted to break that down for you as far as uh, cross country flights, the $100 hamburger and uh, what I kind of do as far as the pre-flight planning aspect of things and what it's like to do a pre-flight on an airplane. So thanks again for tuning in today, guys. I really appreciate it. Um, if you're able to get some good information from the content, make sure you go on 
Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever it is you get your podcasts and leave us a good review on there. Uh, make sure sub- to subscribe to our podcast so you make sure you get the, the latest and greatest content when we release it here, as well as uh, if you knew anybody who may benefit from this kind of information, uh, share the podcast over to them. That definitely helps us as far as getting a little bit of exposure and making sure that people see us that might be able to get some information from it. So thanks again, guys. We'll see you on the next one.